welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Well, welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Before we get started, as always, just a reminder to sign up for my newsletter at jasonpereira.ca. Now, on to today's show. Today, I have Stephanie Chu, partner at Portage Ventures. Portage Ventures is a venture capital firm that specifically invests within the fintech space, the financial technology space. However, I didn't bring her in specifically for that. What I brought her in for was to have a conversation about what venture capitalists are, how to approach them, what they're looking for, and how to know if you're someone who should be taking on venture capital. And with that, here's my interview with Stephanie. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Jason. Thanks for taking the time to come in. No worries. Glad to be here. Excellent. So Stephanie Chu of Portage, tell us about Portage Ventures. Portage is a global fintech-specific venture fund. We invest across seed Series A and Series B, but we're really looking for companies in the fintech space that are going to transform the future of financial services. So we typically are invest at the stage where companies have what's called product market fit, which mm-hmm. means they've got early traction, they've got customers, they've got some revenue, mm-hmm. but we will often or sometimes make exceptions for companies a little bit earlier than that, where we have really strong conviction in a space or in a team that we've known for a long time. We invest globally, which is, I think, one of our differentiators. Mm-hmm. So North America and and Western Europe and Finally, we've got a set of LPs that include institutional LPs, but also a number of corporate strategics. And I think one of our big pieces of value add is that we have a full team dedicated to creating partnerships. They could be commercial partnerships, distribution partnerships mm-hmm. between our LPs that are financial services oriented and our fintechs. So really our belief is that we want to create ecosystems and mm-hmm and connecting different players within that ecosystem will create outsized value for everybody. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that you're not just about the investment portion about it, you're helping them not only not only do they have product market fit, but basically get the right partnerships to get their product in the market and everybody wins and those are also investors in the fund. So it makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. So the reason I brought you in is, is uh, normally we talk fintech, but this is not specific to fintech. It's more so about, uh, for lack of a better term, talking to VCs. So essentially, what is a venture capital firm and how can the listeners who may be in a position where they might be a right fit for that, basically under, come to a basic understanding of what that experience looks like. So let's start off again with what is a venture capital firm? What is it you guys do specifically? A venture capital firm is a source of capital for certain kinds of early stage businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of different VC funds that focus that are specific to sector and specific to stage, but at the highest level, they're capital providers mm-hmm. to generally very high growth (laughs) companies that are generally also technology oriented and scalable in their business model. VC funds invest almost exclusively on what is called a like a venture portfolio approach, Mm -hmm. which is unlike other sources of capital like private equity, the VC market looks to make bets on bets slash investments in a portfolio, yes, that's right. In, in a in a portfolio approach, which means that they're looking for generally billion or multi billion dollar outcomes, mm-hmm. and they expect 
eight, depending on what stage you're investing in, 50 to 90% of their investments to fail. Yeah. And it's really, they're investing on what's called the power law basis, which is a very small number of your portfolio will end up generating 90% or plus returns yeah. for you. You're swinging for the fences every time, striking right. out plenty of times, but if you hit the home runs, it's all that matters, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, and that billion dollar opportunity more than makes up for all of the eight companies that you bought at the same time that went nowhere. That's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm generalizing across lots of different stages and mm -hmm. that failure rate and survival rate is going to change depending on yeah. how early or late you invest. But that is even the latest stage investors in the VC space will say that that is how they invest. Yeah, because there's still a lot of risk, right? Sometimes it's just not the risk of the company failing. It's a matter of the company goes public and maybe they end up not making money because they bought a too high a value. We were talking about WeWork earlier, so. Yes, that's yeah. right. It's a really high risk asset class. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it's it, it's not a public market, right? So you do not have all the players in a public market creating a clearing price that hopefully is efficient. You guys are working with your numbers or calculations, making your best educated guesses, but it is one that regardless of that, there's still a lot of risk to these businesses and there's a lot of risk to you putting up the capital at whatever valuation you think it's worth. So it's not for everybody. We talked about who it's for. So let's talk about who it's not. Like why would a listener who's got a business that's growing well not be looking towards dealing with a, a VC or would not be a good fit for a VC? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, I'm very passionate believer that you should match the kind of business that you are to the right source of capital. And mm -hmm. venture is not the right funding source for a lot, for I would say the majority of businesses out there. If you are a cash generating, cash flowing business that is not particularly scalable mm -hmm. and maybe not growing a hundred percent or more year over year, venture may not be for you. And I think there's lots of great businesses out there that fit that profile that can find other sources of funding being either debt or other sources of maybe private equity style funding or angel funding mm -hmm. that is not suited well to the venture capital sphere. I would also say, even if you could potentially be, and as we were talking about earlier, there's certainly a spectrum of kind of what are called lifestyle businesses all the way to scalable venture businesses and everything in between. Even if you could potentially raise venture, there might be a lot of reasons why you might not want to. And I, and I, I kind of explained already that venture firms, I explained a little bit of the structure of venture firms and maybe one other thing I'll mention is that it's important to note that our LPs expect a return. So the investors Absolutely. that invest in venture funds want a return at some point in time. And if you want to hold your business and potentially pass it on to the next generation or potentially, or it's a business that you want to run for 15 or 20 years in your life, venture is not, not the, the right funding source, yeah. funding source for you because they will expect an exit. A typical fund life in the venture world is... 10 to 15 years, mm -hmm. 10 to 12 years, they will expect an exit in the lifespan of their fund so mm -hmm. that they can return capital to their investors. Yeah, it's not a multi-generational play. That's right. So your business should ideally find an exit within the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that means a sale or an IPO or a swing at the fences to a sale or an IPO, which might mean a zero. Yeah. And I think you will be, as someone who has taken venture capital, you will be asked expected to grow to quickly <laughs> and expected to find a way to exit and return capital within the following 10 years. And that is not 
that is not what every business owner aspires to. And I no. certainly don't think that is what every business owner should aspire to. No, I mean, so. when, when people start looking for the exit from day one, sometimes it's a very bad sign. And other times it's just, it depends on the nature of the business. I often say that, you know, you guys are basically rocket fuel. So if someone needs rocket fuel because the only thing preventing them from growing that business is the capital because they have something highly scalable and, and, and very profitable and they're reinvesting 100% of whatever they're making, if they're making money back into the business, you guys are the solution to that potentially depending on other dynamics as we discussed. Yeah. And we will certainly ask for our companies to reinvest. So pushing to profitability at the early stages is not something that we typically are looking for. Yeah. So, and that again is going to sometimes be at odds with with certain kinds of businesses that could in fact be profitable. And or people reinvest. who just can't get their head around that's that. That's right, that's right. right. Like trying to say, you know what, I'm not even gonna run a profit, I'm gonna run a loss on an annual basis. And it's really, it's a, you know, it's not just tech companies, right? If anyone's read Phil Knight's book on the origins of Nike, it's called Shoe Dog. And he was constantly being told by his financiers, like, start holding on to some capital. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm growing at this rate. Every penny I have is going into buying more inventory and bringing it in and pushing it out because he was growing so fast. Yep. You know, he risked his company several times over, but if he hadn't, would he be where he is today, right? Yep. That's right. And one other structural thing to note is, depending on the stage, we're looking for generally at the early stages, seed series A, which I can explain what those categories mean, we're looking for 10X plus return on our capital. Mm. And I think that's important to note as well, because if you sell your business, if we buy a stake in your business, we're expecting at the later stage, minimum of three times, at the early stages, at least 10 times, often more, we're looking for the 100,000 yeah. times return on our capital. And yeah. so that gives you some sense of what kinds of exits matter and typically that's going to be in the billion dollar range to make a fund. So there's some real structural issues at play that really drive our investment decisions, but also not only our investment decisions, but also the kinds of companies that we choose and the kinds of paths or trajectories that we expect those companies to be on. That's yeah. not to say that a hundred million, like, again, if you're investing earlier, maybe a hundred, $150 million exit can be exciting, but Part of the issue is you will need to continue to grow and continue to meet a certain trajectory to mm. to raise additional venture dollars. Yeah, and that's, so, I've been told that by several people in that world, where the job of any VC is actually, or any VC funded company, is to get the next round of funding, right? Like your goal right. is, I've taken this money in, the next goal is I know I'm gonna, I've got quote unquote runway, enough money to last me for X number of months based on our plan. I need to get to the business to a point where the growth is satisfactory enough to other VCs or the same VCs to give me more money to get to that next stage and so on and so on. Yeah, it's no wonder that this type of business attracts, you know, is more attracted to technology and software because, hey, software scales infinitely, right? It's uh, you develop the code and it can be copied a million times over for next to no not marginal cost, right? So it makes a lot of sense. So. That's, you know, we talked about who who makes sense and who doesn't make sense in, in terms of a VC funding. And we can talk about, give you examples like, for example, like Joe's Pizza. I open up a pizza shop. I'm not going to seek VC funding unless I've re revolutionized how pizza gets made in some way, shape, or form. Ironically, there have been a lot of famous, like recent examples of pizza shops getting funded. I would say. Is that, okay. <laughs> That's a side story. What? There is a side story behind that. I mean, one of the latest hottest trends, which you can, this is not my domain. Is this the automated pizza play? Yes. Okay, the, that makes the sense. The automated pizza play. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, I would say, there are a number of cloud kitchens. Pizza, yes. Pizza being one of the most, uh, one of the easiest categories of food to actually make 
in small contained spaces. So, yeah. so these are restaurants that don't actually have a forward facing uh, you know, that's frontage. Right. It could be in the middle of an industrial complex, but they're just delivering very via Uber Eats or whatever else it is. That's right. Yeah. So they are virtual kitchens where there's no actual storefront yeah. and you develop a brand yeah. and there's a lot of distribution, new distribution angles out there. And because you don't have to run or manage the front of house in a restaurant, yeah. it actually becomes, quote unquote, a lot more scalable. Travis Kalanick got into this, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. that's his big, that's his the big next, next venture is yeah. if you think about the logistics of Uber and what he's what he was able to build there, yeah. I think this is a natural extension. Moving further up the funnel. But yeah, so I picked the worst example with pizza, but that's that's hilarious. So that you know what? There you go. Even pizza with the right implementation technology changing the game that can actually be a venture attracted to venture companies. So we talked about again who should and who shouldn't in general. Let's talk about how to talk to someone like yourself. So basically they get an introduction, they get an opportunity to speak to a VC. What is it you're looking for that company to deliver to you to make it look compelling besides the asymptotic growth curve? Yeah, and I think it really depends on the stage of company. Every VC will look for something different, but I think there's some core fundamentals that are being evaluated. One, mm. and the first and foremost, everybody says this, is the team. We look for teams that have a track record mm. in generally in in excellence of some sort. It could be within their industry. It could be outsiders challenging an industry, but we're looking for a track record of success. Repeat entrepreneurs, we're often looking for entrepreneurs with exits. The team is, a company might pivot its business model a hundred times. It might even pivot the space that it's the space that it's operating in a hundred times. Mm -hmm. But what doesn't ideally change fundamentally in what you're investing in is the team. So that's the number one thing that I think most venture funds will say that they look yeah. for or invest in. We then obviously look at the business itself. Is this a business we believe could eventually become a multi-hundred million dollar or billion dollar business. And I think a lot of factors go into that. Is this a market that we think is interesting? Is there a, why now? So why is this the time that there's an opportunity in this particular mm -hmm. space? And then I would say in that as well, we look at, is this actually solving a problem? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of really interesting technology out there that does not solve any actual yes. problem. And that's, that's, I think, one of the big things that we look for is does this, is there a pain point that is so viscerally held by a potential customer base that this does not need to be sold, that there's just latent kind yeah. of demand Here, for whatever Shut it up is and take is. my money. It's that important. That's right. To me. Yeah. And I will pay any amount. And yeah. I think like that's one of the key things that we look at. And I think you can see that yeah. in a lot of different ways. You can see that in early customer attraction. You can see that in a group of crazy evangelists that's that, yeah. for the product. You can see that in product reviews, you can see it in talking to specific customers. And I think those are the things that we're really, those are the things that we're really looking for. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, a lot of that makes sense. Um, you know, the Ray Kurzweil specifically talks about how a lot of ideas are not bad ideas that fail. They're great ideas. The problem is, is that their timing is wrong, right? And yep. if you look at a lot of the companies that are being, that are unicorns now, that's a privately funded private company that's worth over a billion dollars. A lot of those ideas were ideas that actually existed back during a dot-com bubble and failed miserably. And then yep. now the timing's right, the technology's right, the social understanding of what can be done is right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and as for- Users might not have been ready previously. And I think there's yeah. a lot of examples where customers, Instagram, Twitter, I think are great examples where there are 
there were many businesses that were started before then yep. that were very similar, but I think you end up having, there were moments in time in which, I mean, in our segment, I think online banking, mobile banking, digital only banks, that has kind of been the trajectory of what we've seen and consumer readiness around being able to be willing to trust a digital only mobile first bank yeah. that where this is your money. And I think the bar for trust is super high. And I think it's only, that's part of the reason why we believe that there's a generational opportunity to invest in FinTech now is the consumer readiness is there. They see the experiences that they're getting in the other apps in their phone and the other kind of areas of their life. And they want that convenience in their financial life. And I would say 10, 15 years ago, even though the internet was around. The iPhone wasn't. No, mobile changed that game exactly, massively. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a confluence of actual technological changes, but also a consumer readiness is different and mm. trust is different. And yep. especially after 2008, I think there's a number of reasons we believe that now is the time. Yeah. The big towers aren't necessarily the safe thing. You know, exactly. I can trust someone who's a smaller player. It's, and I still remember a major Canadian bank coming out with their own online offering as an online exclusive offering back in like the, during the dot-com bubble. Like it was, it was like late nineties, early two thousands and yep. so far ahead and it went nowhere. Right. And then it was just like, yeah, the internet's a cool thing. Let's put ourselves on there. People just weren't ready for it. I mean, the number of people back then who would put their number, their credit card number in a, in a on a website was infinitesimal compared to now. So yeah, it's, it's, and I had this conversation around paradigm changes on my other podcast. And just to share a story, I give a, you know, I've had this conversation about voice as an interface, I'm way off track here, but voice as an interface and people saying, well, you know, look at the stats, no one's using it. And you know, it's, is it really, you know, we are used to visual interfaces. I say, yeah, that's nice, that's us, okay. But my daughter at 18 months pushed the button on my Apple watch and started going blah, 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 blah. And that's, I was just like, okay, she's, she's growing up with voice as an actual UI. And yep. to her, just shouting it out is going to seem like nothing. And my son loves giving, you know, my HomePod or my, uh, my Alexa, just triggered a bunch of Alexas, just basically loves giving them instructions on playing music or telling jokes or whatever else, right? Yep. So that's the same kind of an example, right? You know, takes almost a generational change to get used to that. And I think, yeah, what you guys have done is smart because your timing is quite quite nice on that. So you look at the team first and foremost, people behind any business is always the most important thing. You know, I, you hear these stories about companies getting funded off a slide deck. And I, I like to say more often than not, that, that usually doesn't happen. What is it you're typically looking for from them at the time that they sit down with you behind the people? So just to make a comment on the slide deck, that rarely happens. Very rare. <laughs> and again, I don't want to generalize because there are some founders that are able to do that. And mm -hmm. that might happen if you approach what is typically a pre-seed fund that specializes in investing in teams. And again, we're looking for some very specific things that will happen. You increase your chances of that happening. If you are a repeat entrepreneur with an exit, then yes, you can absolutely yeah. raise capital. If you're one of the PayPal on, mafia has done this twice now, right. like you're going to get, oh, really? You're doing something new? I don't want to see the slide deck. Here's the check, right? That's in right. Some cases. And I think there are a very small number of people who could do that. And yes. It is absolutely true that it happens, but with a very select few people. Exactly. And I think we're looking for, as I mentioned, so the so team, I think we're looking for a, something that solves a very specific pain point or problem, which can manifest, which like, again, we can see via product metrics, revenue metrics, 
customer engagement metrics. Mm -hmm. Those are all so things that we're looking for. better be done. For. There better be something done and proven in terms of a use case. Generally, yes. Generally, yeah. we're looking for at the stage that we invest in. And again, there's a lot of other companies that invest in different stages. Yeah. We're looking, if you can't show some reason why your problem, why your technology or whatever your business should exist and why it should solve a problem, mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be easy to find an investor. And then I would say, Typically, we're looking for a kind of a market or a business that's going to have a trajectory to being a large business. Mm -hmm. And that generally means there's something scalable about your model. Mm -hmm. And if we can't see that, then it's, again, very hard to attract an, a venture investor. Yeah. So there needs to be a compelling story behind that about why you think this is this can scale to be a hundred million dollar revenue opportunity without being and I, and again there's different kinds of venture funds we're typically looking for and capital light business models which is what a software company is so, yeah they're not again, buying giant factories or anything like that they're right. you know they're employing guys on a floor or people on a floor that are basically sitting there in front of computers and they're just punching away Yes, there has to be, there generally is a strong technology component to mm -hmm. whatever business it is. Although again, there's so many exceptions that have been and are still venture funded. Yep. All of the consumer venture platforms, which are direct to consumer brands, mm -hmm. a lot of them have raised a lot of venture dollars that are valued over a billion dollars today. And that sell X direct to consumer yep. contacts, glasses, suitcases. <laughs> Many like of these things are all things I order online myself from companies like what this. What have you? Weighted uh, blankets lately. Yeah, I've seen this. Uh, that is also a big trend. And I think all of these could be, all of these purport to have some technology underlying yeah. why they are, why they could be venture scalable. I think. We haven't seen that many exits yet, so no. <laughs> time time will tell yeah. if these will be venture businesses. I think the truth is if you invested early enough, you're probably fine, but that is a trajectory that we're looking for. And I think it's often underpinned using technology, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a technology first or technology only company mm -hmm. that will attract venture. Yeah, sometimes it simply is, I'm going to sell X on the internet a different way by using what are models that other people aren't using traditionally. That's right, um, to attract or exactly. acquire a customer. And and that there have been, yeah, there are venture capital yeah. business funded businesses yeah. that and we that talked about Casper earlier. Well. I mean, you know, like yeah. company that sells mattresses direct to your door and does so online and predominantly got it's uh, it's basically recognition through social media marketing, podcasts, all of it, you know, stuff that traditional mattress companies were just not doing or yeah. just not doing as effectively. And I would say that they their innovation, they would say happens a, on the marketing side, which you've already identified, but also on the supply chain side, because yeah. they've been able to really, Absolutely. they would say, cut costs by going direct to factories, cutting out the middlemen, cutting out the storefront costs. Mm -hmm. So by going direct to consumer, there's many different steps in the value chain that they've been able to cut out, which has allowed them to provide a at least similar style product mm -hmm. for a fraction of the price. So yeah. one of the things uh, a fintech funded uh, enterprise said to me once was, you know, when he's talking about what he learned about in this entire process, he goes, you know, I don't think I started off respecting the venture capitalist money the way I should have. They all hear these stories about the pitch deck sold companies, right? And they think that, okay, like these guys are just going to, you know, you're willing to lose money on eight out of 10, take a flyer on me. And it's not that, right? It's exactly what you're saying is that, no, you have to approve in something. You have to prove in that it's, it's already got some sort of fit. 
and that there's massive potential. So, And I would add one other thing, which is also important as we talked about the example of mattresses being sold online. I think mm -hmm. the moat, that's another thing oh, that yeah, I think a lot moat. of people end up looking for. So what do we mean by that? Mm -hmm. It means what is proprietary or what is protected or defensible about either your business model or your actual product, because you can be a big scalable business, but you could be inundated very quickly with competitors, which will drive your pricing and power down and put yep. you into a commodity business eventually. And we've seen lots of examples of that too. Casper is a perfect example of that. There's so many online mattress companies now. It's quite easy to be a me too. And I think yep. one of the double-edged sword of technology is that it's advanced to such a rate that you could build anything actually pretty quickly with a good team of engineers. And my personal belief is that brand, brand actually is defensible. It's just very capital intensive to build. Yeah, it takes a, I mean, some of the businesses you've invested in, such as Well Simple, spend a lot of time on marketing and it's it's about being that top of mind default to people, right? And it's, um, it, it is, brand is defensible. Coke has proven that, um, yes. you know, like Warren Buffett yep. talks about moats all the time. And again, he says, I could take the valuation of, of, of Coca-Cola, start a new company, and I would never be Coca-Cola because I don't have the name and the recognition and the brand of it. So yeah, very important. So when we get to the term, so you guys decide that you want to basically invest in something, what does that negotiation look like? Um, you know, in terms of let's define what a term sheet is and what goes into that. And then uh, what besides price and percentage are being negotiated in this conversation? Yeah, even before I get to that, I'll, sure. I wanna make one more quick you know point this before is, this you- is, This is hilarious because so often on this podcast, people are like, you jump forward a little bit too fast. <laughs> so by all means, That's, correct I, me. Just, correct just me. one other point that I probably should have mentioned earlier, before yeah. you go sit down with the VC, you should probably have done a little bit of research on what it is that they, focus on. It's, yes. I get a lot, I only invest in FinTech. I get a lot of inbound pitches for things that are not in my field. Just scattershot. Yeah. And you just look at their portfolio, understand what it is that they do, understand if they have a competitive company in, yeah. in their portfolio. True. That might preclude them from investing as it is, but I think having doing some understand if they invest in the stage of company that you are, and it's always good to meet people sooner rather than later. But I would and build a relationship with them, but have some cursory research done would be the mm -hmm. other thing that I would say. Now going to terms, I think there are the negotiation is I would say pretty like can be pretty standard. There's a mm -hmm. pretty standard set of CBCA documents that most funds will use. So key terms, obviously, number one thing is price mm -hmm. that which impacts dilution. So how much of your business you own, that mm -hmm. is obviously the most, I would say the headline thing that people end up negotiating, mm -hmm. or companies and venture funds end up negotiating. There are a lot of philosophies on this, a lot of people will say, take the right partner because mm -hmm. you're it's like getting married it's a it's it lo lasts longer this relationship lasts longer than in some marriages than some marriages <laughs> yep. i would say board structure and governance is another big part of the negotiation that that so who ends up on your board so oversight control is a big part. oversight and control so what the board ends up control what rights and privileges the board actually has what consent rights the preferred shareholders have that ends up being the probably the second most negotiated thing in the term sheet and then there's always and then the third which kind of goes to part one around price is the amount that you're raising the 
and what the structure of the the amount of capital, the total amount of capital and the mm-hmm. minimum and maximum amount of capital that mm-hmm. that can be raised in a given round ends up being part of the mix as well. I would say those are the three most probably negotiated things. And mm-hmm. there's lots of other- Yeah, there's tons of other terms. And other which, terms and minutiae, but- Yeah, there's a, few, uh, there's a few books that people can read if they're interested in this that I'll attach to the, uh, the show notes. So yeah, so basically that covers off a fair amount there and provides some guidance there. Uh, what else should people know when dealing with VCs that are just kind of misconceptions or misunderstandings that people have? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there's- We've talked about a couple of them already. One of them mm-hmm. is I can I can go and and raise on a PowerPoint. I think the second is it takes a lot longer than you think. And we tell all even our companies that have gone through this multiple times, sometimes there's an amnesia that that <laughs> comes into play, but it takes give yourself 6 to 9 months runway. You never want to leave it too late. It takes a really long time and it is highly time consuming, even if you've gone through the process once, even if you already have a relationship. It is, I think a lot of people don't realize how much effort and time it takes away from actually running your business. That's another reason not to take venture funding, by the way. It's the distraction of it, yeah. It it can be a massive distraction and it often is, it often requires a full-time person thinking about fundraising. And that's lots of time that you are meeting with investors and pitching. That's all time that you're not spending working on your actual business and growing it. And I think it's a big challenge that founders have is to balance the two. Because if you're spending a full year fundraising, that's a full year that you're not growing and managing your business actively at a day-to-day level. So I think that's it is a grind and it's not necessarily a super enjoyable experience all the time. But no. at the same time, I think you only need one yes. So you, or sometimes a few yeses. So yeah, or at least one big key yes that other people are gonna say if they're in, I'm in, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's another great point, which is I would spend as much time as possible upfront finding people who can lead and who are willing to put a term sheet down because finding followers is pretty easy. Finding a lead and somebody to take conviction in your company and, and set terms is going to be difficult. So. Yeah. Especially, I mean, especially when certain funds get to certain levels, it just becomes almost a default for other ones to say, okay, if they're in for this much, we're definitely going to tag along. No problem. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, (laughs) you've done all the due diligence work. I'm in, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny, you know, just from personal experience talking to founders that I know just saying, Hey, let's catch up for, for drinks or whatever it is. And they're, they're like, I'm in the middle of a funding round. I'm like, okay. So when you hoping to close like three months, okay, I'll talk to you in four. (laughs) Like they, it's uh, you know, they may, and then, then you talk to them. It's like, well, I've got about 24, 36, months worth of runway. So I'm get to, I get to work on product for the next 12 to 18 months. And then right after that, I'm back on the parade trying to basically raise more funds for the next round. So yeah, it's, it's time consuming. Yeah, most definitely. And I would say, again, it's not for every business. No. And, and that's, that's one of the key considerations that I would make if I were in the shoes of an entrepreneur trying to consider if they should should run after venture funding or not. Yeah, no. And there's other options out there, as we discussed. There's private equity, there's search funds, which I'll hope to talk about in a future day too. But it's definitely, I mean, frankly, if, if you're the right kind of business, partnering with people such as yourself is is frankly uh, trying to get to where you want to get as fast as you possibly can before someone else gets there. It's going to require the right partnerships. Yeah. And there's also bootstrapping, which is yeah. which is oh, using yeah. your savings to get to profitability on a business. And I think that's the- The old fashioned way. That is the old fashioned way. Yep. And I feel like that's, there are great businesses 
that end up having fantastic exits that start that way as well. So no, oh, I know the, the number of business owners who are sitting that I know that are sitting on multi-million dollar enterprises, not billion dollar, but they get into the eight figures and close to the nine. And it's, you know, they, they started with their own bare hands out of their house, right? Like it's just, it happens and it, it can't be underestimated how much work that is. And yeah, so it's, it does not need to be fast and, and highly scalable. It can be highly successful otherwise. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. So thank you very much for taking the time. Before we go, where can people find you? And hopefully only bug you with ones that are fintech based that you're looking for that, you know, they listen to this entire podcast and they're like, I'm a fit for that. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if you're a fit, so you can find us on a number of different channels. Mm -hmm. So we're on obviously LinkedIn and Twitter and probably the best way to reach me is just to shoot me an email. So we've got a, an info box at info at p3vc.com that we monitor very regularly. So if you've got an interesting company, please feel free to reach out. Fantastic. Thanks yet again. Thanks, Jason. Take care. So that was my interview with Stephanie Chu of Portage Ventures. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you are a company that's highly scalable and in the fintech space, you're definitely going to want to reach out to them. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.